on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, if you're a diehard OBS fan, you're probably listening to the show Friday morning as you nurse your gravy hangover. This week, we'll skip the divisive opera news and the A-list singers and quarterbacks behaving badly. Instead, let's celebrate feasts and family the OBS way with Weston's soup song of giganticide. We serve up a buffet by taking a look at a plate full of works where food and music go together like peas and carrots. Remember, you're watching on TDO. You want to subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. And you can always email us your hot takes, operaboxscore@gmail.com. Drop us a line. Get that OBS beer coaster. Get that OBS lapel pin just for sharing your hot take. We got the whole family back Aww. this week. This is like perfect timing. Oliver Camacho, great to see you. Yeah, we wanted to do a show for you guys that feels like the, you know, bottle episode for the holidays that you can listen to it every Thanksgiving. You don't have to worry about what Aaron Rodgers is doing or what Anna Trepko is doing. It's just <laughs> enjoy, enjoy us. I like how, I like how both, of those things, both those people are, are consistently problematic enough <laughs> so that we can say it and it literally works for anything. It will still be evergreen yeah. without. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Noted medical scholars, Anna Trepko and Aaron Exactly. <laughs> Matt Cummings, part of the family here. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I got my to-do list for the week jam-packed. Got to bake a pie before I drive back to Pennsylvania. Why don't you just go buy a Patty LaBelle sweet potato pie? Oh, it might be its ugly head. Weston <laughs> Williams here with us as well. Yes, I am not making a turkey this year. I am uh, doing a very British thing and making a roast for the first time. Really? And I probably will burn down my entire apartment. So a roast be beast? A roast beast, yes. Pro tip, Ooh. if you do roast potatoes, put them directly underneath the roast rather than separate on this on the side. I was going to balance them on like the heating elements. Is that not what to do? I love that idea. Okay. Ashley Hardy. Wait, 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 wait. You can't just give uh, cooking advice like without being clear. Are you saying put the roast on the rack that's in your oven, like on the grate, and then put a pan underneath that? Or are you saying put the beef literally on top of potatoes? Because I've done the... Go on. Please. Because I I feel like people think they should put, you know, a big piece of cold meat on top of their cold potatoes. And what happens is you have raw potatoes when you're all done. You do. You you do need a roasting pan and a roasting rack. It's a Smackdown culinary Smackdown. I thought I've seen Oliver get mad about correcting people on the show before. (laughs) But it's not when it comes to a roast. (laughs) This is a a rare moment where Oliver and I are agreeing on on how to cook, cook a piece of meat. Ashley Hardgrave, how are you? I... I, am I love what you've home. done with your place, by the way. Yes, I, contrary to uh, listeners, it looks like I'm in a reboot of Little House on the Prairie. I'm not. I'm in a family <laughs> spare bedroom back in my home state of Arkansas. And I'm back with my boys. I haven't seen you guys in a couple of weeks. Yeah. It's great to see you. Thanksgiving. It's been a while. The gang is all here. We're going to talk some opera. Opera. 
on the show. It's a buffet of opera, music, food, and family. We've got five different operatic and vocal works for you all having to do with food. We've argued, because what would family be without a little bit of arguing about what order we're going to go in, but Oliver actually <laughs> drew the short cheese straw and is uh, going to go first. Well, I just want an opportunity to talk about Cenerentola because I don't think we have talked about it on OBS. And I wanted an excuse to uh, bring it into the conversation because um, as people of the other podcast about podcast about opera that I've been known to do already know about me, it is one of my top 10 operas and it's my favorite Rossini opera. Oh, same here. Same and here. I just love this story, which to me feels like um, Harry Potter origin story or something like that. It's the same thing where... You know, uh, Angelina is just suffers so much with her family, but yet she has this magic power. And uh, the magic power that we get to hear is coloratura, but her real power is forgiveness. And it Aww. feels it feels like it comes from this line of enlightenment operas, namely Mozart operas, where the whole point is to get everybody you know, into a situation where somebody has to forgive you because you've gone so far, you've messed up everything. So the only way to get out of it is forgiveness. And here we have this character, Harry Potter or Angelina, however you want to describe her, um, who has this magic. And, you know, she, her vocal style, the the way Rossini wrote for her is tied directly to um the coloratura capabilities of his dramatic heroines, his, you know, tragedians, you know, like Semiramide or um, Elena in La Donna del Lago. Like she has those same tricks, you know, which make her an opera seria character in the midst of a comedy, supposedly a comedy. Um, and we get little hints of it, you know, early on in the opera. But of course, it all is leading to the finale of Non Fumesta, where she just, you know, brings the curtain down with the coloratura spectacle showpiece. Uh, one of my favorite moments in the opera, uh, which has to do with feasts, is after she's done her makeover, she got herself, her hairs did, and her nails and her makeup, <laughs> and she comes into the ball, and she is unrecognizable. And uh, we get this moment, before she even speaks, of her entering the building, and our first clip is just the confusion that is created uh, at this ball slash feast with everybody saying, who's that? Who's that? Who is a, a woman? You know, there's no other woman in this town. There's just two really that live in this town. So, uh, so then the sisters, the stepsisters you can hear are always usually cast by these very sabrette, very like brassy, unbeautiful type voices. And uh, it's not fair that they get cast that way, but we're going to hear just the stunned, uh, court of um, Prince Ramiro and the sisters saying, Who that? Oh, <laughs> 
so today we are sampling the my my favorite recording this opera i wish there was uh a slightly better recording than this but right now it is the gold standard it's the ricardo shai led recording that stars the young cecilia bartoli still in her late late 20s when she recorded this uh it has a pretty great italian cast um there's one cast member that leaves a lot to be desired but we don't have to uh this is a this is <laughs> a thanksgiving there <laughs> yeah this is a thanksgiving episode so it's all positive all positive so, all good so after everybody's like oh who that who that you know uh she finally makes her vocal entrance as this mystery woman and she says the most i mean the thing that really encapsulates the spirit of this opera and i want to pull up my libretto so i don't get this wrong Okay, she says, Sprezzo quei don che versa fortuna capricciosa, mofra chi mi vuol sposa, rispetto amor bontà. I scorn those gifts which fickle fortune lavishes upon us. Let him who would take me to wife, take me to wife, uh, offer me respect, love, and kindness. So here she is for the first time in her life in this space where there's beautiful food in front of her. Everybody's dressed so nice. It's all you know, elegantly appointed and finery and tables and ballets and uniforms. She's like, I don't need any of this. I just want goodness. I want kindness, you know? Uh, and she says it in this way, which is just so magically coloratura. This is Cecilia Bartoli. <laughs> Then we get the Rossini finale, and of course, it starts with this moment of everybody being confused. And um, when you're confused in a Rossini opera, uh, you sing a phrase in the um, like the frozen affect, like the stunted affect, and you sing it, and then somebody else in the cast sings it, then somebody else in the cast sings it, and you pass it around like a hot potato. Is that and a it's technical just, term? Yes, <laughs> it's just it's just so I much. I saw fun. what you did there. I liked it. Mm, so let's hear taters. a little bit. Let's hear a little bit of the Patty the Bell moment. Mm-hmm. 
Because it's an Italian opera, there is not a ball, there's not a dance scene here, a dance sequence. Instead, it's a meal sequence. And we get we get That's to my the, kind of sequence, baby. <laughs> we get to the to the strata of the first act finale, which is just gorging. And I know Matt, I want you to chime in here, but um there is actually something that's that is a little bit I don't know. Um but there's two things. One, it's hilarious because these Italian operas from this era are so tied to Commedia dell'arte. Mm-hmm. And when you know that, you realize that like every character has one motivation. And, um, you know, Ramiro is looking for love and the sisters are looking to please their father. And the father is looking for power. And Dandini is, he's a valet. So he's actually hungry and so he's in disguise for the first half of the opera, but he's actually dying to eat. Like, he never gets to eat this way. <laughs> in disguise as the prince. <laughs> yes, yeah. in disguise as the prince, you know. And so, and of course, these other characters are also hungry. And it's just a great moment to pig out on the stage. So many productions of this opera, I say, it's like, everybody's just, like, shoveling boot in their face in this scene <laughs> yes. while going do, through the stress. Do you guys do the thing, like, I remember when I was growing up, going to the opera, my favorite thing to do would be, like, to take binoculars, because we're all, all the way back, back into the nosebleeds. Yeah. Uh, and, and every time there was food on stage, I would just, like, lock in and see who was actually eating <laughs> and who eat? was faking yes. it. Yeah. That's my favorite thing to do at the opera. Yeah. Highly recommend. It's so fun. So fun. Well, I want... I want to hear Matt's comment about this, but I before I pass it over, um, I love this opera so much because, um, you know, despite everything that Angelina goes through, what she asks for in the end of the opera uh, or in the penultimate scene of the opera is for Ramiro to not be angry at her family. And then when she has the wedding scene, what she asks for is just for them to be a family. That's all she's ever wanted, you know? Yeah. And it's almost like, whatever Stockhausen syndrome, like where you love your abusers, you know? Did you say Stockhausen oh, Stockholm? syndrome? Stockholm. <laughs> it's Stockholm. 
Although, is that I what I know have? What syndrome that is? <laughs> Weston, you do. <laughs> that, that's where you. Syndrome. That's where you listen to Zamstag aus Licht unironically and enjoy it. Uh, that's a great opera. That's no, a, just no, a bit. That's a different episode. And like, I there are so many operas where you're supposed to cry, like you know, um, Traviata and La Boheme. And like, yeah, I'll probably cry during those operas. But the opera I'm probably going to cry at the most is Marriage of Figaro and La Cenerentola because the forgiveness moments for whatever reason, just really get to me. almost any Rossini opera is the stretta of the act one finale because it is where like all of these pieces that you've been building one at a time like the whole tower is there everyone's on stage they're all singing and the the difference the different rhythms of all of the different layers just like add on something that even though no one part is necessarily like show-stopping or interesting it creates something bigger as this whole um so that's that's what I will be listening for it, much like a Thanksgiving feast. Yeah, and you get the Rossini crescendo where it's like the idea is so simple, but to see it actually, and you know, our friend Anthony Beresi, Anthony Beresi came on and explained how it really works. It's not just things are getting louder. It's just like there is like a rhythmic idea that is getting a little bit faster mm-hmm. and there are instruments that are being layered on and you don't even hear the layers that are being added, but it just makes it sound more and more intense, you know? It's like that moment where you've put all this stuff on your plate and you don't even know where to start. And you it's like, like making eat. a lasagna. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the traditional Thanksgiving lasagna, like we all uh, know yes. and love. Yeah. Very, very Italian. Oliver Camacho getting us going with Cenerentola and the feeling of family. Weston, you mentioned 
seeing food on stage and that makes me think of uh when i was a boy soprano i was in a production of a show which had real food on stage and boy was that exciting to me we definitely we definitely ate it yes amazing uh i was in a production of albert herring benjamin Britten's friend of the show albert herring from (laughs) from 1947 uh which premiered at glyndebourne and in act two uh everything has built to this big May Day festival where Albert, because there's no uh, virtuous enough young woman to be the May Queen, Albert has become the May King, and there's this huge party planned. Well, his friends are going to get him drunk by lacing his lemonade with rum. Meanwhile, the local music school teacher is trying to corral these three kids into preparing their songs for the uh dignitaries and all they want to do is eat these uh uh treacle tarts yes various <laughs> pieces rolls. of food let's <laughs> listen to this excerpt actually uh from a glyndebourne recording um i'm not exactly sure when but the video on youtube certainly looks like late 70s early late 80s judging on the quality this uh is from albert herring act two Lots of food being mentioned there, including jelly, which of course would just be jello, pink blancmange, which is, oh God, I remember this. When I was in boarding school in England, we used to get blancmange and drink. it was just so, you didn't, well, you did want to drink afterwards. It was just so foul. It was sort of what like. What is it? It's like a sort of chalky, thick, cornstarchy jello. It, it looks like someone's brain has fallen out of their head mm. onto your plate. It's so smart. They've never British made desserts, it on a great yeah. British baking show. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, British desserts from the you know twentieth century, early twentieth century, have really strange names. You know, spotted dick. Yeah, go on, Oliver. Yeah, well, <laughs> that's one of the yeah. <laughs> Of course, they talk about seedy cake, which is a, a sort of a Victoria sponge made with caraway mm, seeds, yeah. treacle tart, which is one of my favorite desserts of all time, sausage rolls, trifle, which you would know, chicken and have, of course, cheese straws and marzipan. Um, it makes me really think two things first of all this opera written in 1947 rationing was still a thing in britain at this time and so for these kids oh, this would yeah. have blown their minds to have that like much the mother food. Load. Yeah. try making that cd cake with one egg in rationing um 
Like, I, We've all I, tried it. We've all failed. I remember. Here's what I remember as a child being in this production. It was directed. Is at the University of Michigan? It was in the School of Music. It was directed by Ken Kazan, who's now the head of opera at University of Southern California. Uh, I I just sidebar. Ken Kazan's Death in Venice mm-hmm. was one of the best things I've ever seen in back in the COT theater. in the early oh, aughts. I think God, it was, that yeah. destroyed me. That production, mm-hmm. oh. brilliant director, tons of fun, uh, and I I remember first of all when you listen to that clip, uh, the the music that those three kids have to sing those close chords. I didn't get it right, Sorry. not one single time did I ever get. <laughs> and no child it. ever has. Well, you, no your mouth is no. your mouth is full of the treacle uh, uh, pie, you know. It... More importantly, I remember this for the cast party. My mother, who is English, she made all of the foods that the children sing about and brought them to the cast party and explained to these University of Michigan undergrads and grads in voice what they all were. And their minds were completely blown. And I will never forget just that wonderful sense of family that Oliver talked about earlier and sharing such a rich and uh, cholesterol-inducing repast. (laughs) You know, before we leave Britain, I just want to say that's what I love about him is that even when he knew what forces he was writing for, he never wrote down. He always oh, he always wrote his music, even when he knew it was going to be kids and like mm-hmm. volunteer church choirs and whatnot putting on his stuff. It's like no, You're like no. sing those sevenths, children, get it right. <laughs> yeah. And don't you Good even luck. get me started on the bounce me high, bounce me low section of that opera when. <laughs> You're playing with a ball against the wall to provide the percussion part. That still gives me nightmares. Ashley Hardgrave, something yes. on the lighter side as well. I feel like we're kind of skipping to dessert here on the, uh, well, actually, no, I mean, a bit of every course. It's not really. It, it, it's got a little bit of everything. And, you know, you mentioned that this was a buffet. And I think we all know that at buffets, you don't go in order. You go for whatever mm-hmm. you feel like at the time. You go ham. And then you go chicken. And <laughs> then you go mac and cheese if you feel like it. That's right. I said Which what I you said. Always we'll be do. taking Come on. questions at this time. <laughs> uh, yeah. So one of the things I want to talk about, uh, I want us to cleanse our palates or rather perhaps kill them with fire uh, for friend of the show, William Bolcom's Lime Jello Marshmallow Cottage Cheese Surprise or what I'm going to call LJMCCS uh, because I don't want to say that every time. So it's it's a fun little recital ender, but did you also know that it's a nod to mid-century feminine uh, feminine stereotypes in capitalism? Because it is. Uh, all right. So our friend, Bolcom, he wrote this, what I call LJMCCS. Uh, it's a satire. It's based on his experiences when he was a kid. He played piano at these women's clubs. And he was fed these gastronomically bizarre processed foods that were in vogue in America during that post-World War II era. You know, it's traditionally sung with this dialect of an overbearing middle-class Midwestern housewife presiding at a meeting of one of these ladies' clubs for which he played piano. Uh, She's giving updates on the activities of the club, and then she goes on to describe this outlandish menu that's going to be served at this club's culture night. And 
I'm going to put this gently. It's a, it's a very particular and stylized flavor scheme. Uh, so <laughs> Bulk of City created this piece, you know, kind of as a novelty to be performed as an encore. And that it is. It serves as a recital staple. It's featured at the end of concerts all over the U.S. and Europe. You cannot hear a senior mezzo voice recital without knowing that this is going to be at least 70% of the encores at any given time across America. Uh, it has become so popular, or became at the time popular, that Bulkham and his wife, Mezzo Joan Morris, eventually bowed to pressure and they recorded the song as part of an album of cabaret songs in 1986. I did hear something that I cannot fully confirm, uh, but I, I was going on a deep dive of some people who really, really loved this piece. And somebody who had had a chat with Bulkham alleged that he was so embarrassed. Uh, first of all, the man has a Pulitzer. So the man has a Pulitzer, and this is the thing I'm talking about. So this lets you know where my brain is. Um, but uh, somebody in in one of these forums mentioned that he was so embarrassed by the song that he wouldn't perform it for like two decades. I don't know if that is still the case. I don't know if that's even a thousand percent true, but it made me giggle. And I'm like, I mean, the man has a Pulitzer. I get it. That, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, this song, you know, he's... He's known for lots of things, but this song is largely spoken. In fact, the uh, the only thing that's ever actually sung in this art song itself is usually the title lyric every time it comes back. You know, it makes fun not only of these unappetizing foods that were at these ladies' conventions, but also this faux-genteel manner that prevailed at these types of social gatherings. And, you know, a lot of women will do this piece. I've seen some men do this piece to great avail. Some people play it for joy. Some people play it for frenzy. But you will always get the nausea <laughs> because of the sweet and savory and WTF list of dishes that are described in this piece. The oh, title dish is actually, the title dish is the least noxious it's uh it's somewhat <laughs> akin to this thing called a seafoam salad which was really popular at five and dime stores especially at the Woolworths lunch counter during the first half of the 20th century seafoam salad was a big deal and lime jello marshmallow cottage cheese surprise is actually pretty pretty close to what a seafoam salad would have been um the dishes do get in the lyrics progressively more flavorably incompatible uh with my <laughs> personal favorite being strawberry ice enshrined in rice with bits of tuna fish who Who's hungry? Grab a plate. <laughs> uh, so it, it seems like it's this funny piece of satire, and it absolutely is, but there's something a little bit deeper here. So this role of like feminized food production that's in this Bulkham song, it actually mirrors a lot of cultural significance of Jello during this time uh, by different cultural critics. Uh, Roland Bart, James Lillix, who also created an amazing uh, thing called the Gallery of Regrettable Food, which is another celebration of like the really weird, questionable cuisine of this time. And another writer named Wendy Wall, they link these popularities of jelly and gelatin-based cuisines with mid-century gender sorry mid-century gender identity and consumerism so to nutshell it the women of post-war mid-century america were integral to food preparation and they were feeding their families and also attempting to impress their peers with these gelatinous concoctions that <laughs> may or may not always go together uh and if you are culinarily curious enough to try this lime jello marshmallow cottage cheese surprise dish yourself the la times did actually post a recipe that has that title in 2002 but you will have to add your own pimentos and mayonnaise to keep it true to what is listed yeah, in the Bolcom piece. A little extra spice, you know? A <laughs> little, little, little extra spice there. Uh, or you can go directly... 
you can go directly to shrimp salads and chocolate sauce garnish with a leek. It's really up to you. You know, judge with your heart. The great delicacies of the atomic age. <laughs> that is correct. That is correct. Uh, how are we all alive, you guys? Our parents ate this stuff. Okay. Uh, if you have been to a voice recital on any continent in the past two decades, you have likely heard, or at the very least heard, about this piece. And there is a reason. It's charming. It's light. It's funny. And it nutshells Bolcom's trenchant sense of humor in just two and a half minutes. There are recordings everywhere on YouTube of every mezzo on earth ending their recital <laughs> with lime jello. But my personal favorite is this live recording that's actually kind of rare of Bolcom and his wife, Joan Morris, doing this for a uh, recording that's released with Minnesota Public Radio. And I think we're going to play that now. <laughs> Ladies, the minutes will soon be read today. The garden club and weaving class, I'm sure, have much to say. But next week is our culture night, our biggest best event. And I've just made a dish for it, you'll all find heaven set. It's my lime jello marshmallow cottage cheese surprise. With slices of pimento, you won't believe your eyes. All topped with a pineapple ring and a dash of mayonnaise. My vanilla wafers round the edge will win your highest praise. <laughs> And Mrs. Jones is making scones that are filled with peanut mousse to be followed by a chicken mold that's made in the shape of a goose. For ladies who must watch those pounds, we found a special dish. Strawberry ice enshrined in rice with bits of tuna fish. And my lime jello marshmallow cottage cheese surprise. Truly a creation that description defies. Will go so well with Mrs. Bell's creation of the week. Shrimp salad topped with chocolate sauce and garnished with a leek. <laughs> Walnut loaf that's crowned with melted cheese Was such a hit last culture night We ask no seconds please Now you must try her hot dog pie With candied mushroom slices Those ladies who resigned last year They just don't know what nice is <laughs> And my lime jello marshmallow Cottage cheese surprise I did not steal that recipe It's lies I tell you lies <laughs> A grand award A picture hat and a salmon sequined gown any girl who tries each dish and keeps a whole lunch down. <laughs> I'm sure you all are waiting for the biggest news dessert. We thought of things in rolls and rings your diet to subvert. You must try a chocolate layer cake on a peanut brittle base with slices of bananas that make a funny face. Around the edges, peppermints just swimming in peach custard with lovely little curlicues of lovely yellow mustard. <laughs> too much for you, permit me to advise more lime jello, marshmallow, cottage cheese, surprise! I made heaps! Great, I'm gonna just take this thing out of my oven and I'll come right back. It's never been more appropriate for him to run out and lose something from his oven than with this episode. <laughs> it's true. Oliver does this on... Hey, everybody, listen to me while he's gone. Oliver does yes. this on every show. He goes Not a joke. Fiddles, every single time. with his oven. But this time, it's actually on brand. And when he comes back, we're going to give him a round of applause. And okay, okay, I'm okay, ready. okay. I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay. It's going to be so exciting. So if you're joining us on TDO, and again, you can also listen to the podcast on... Apple Podcasts, or even just on Stitcher Radio. But what you do get on TDO, of course, is this. Oh. Yay! So, William Bolcom and Joan Morris performing at William Bolcom's LJMCCS. Um, you know, it rolls right off the tongue. I know. It does. Um, I, I, <laughs> I feel like I've heard about, like, you know, food history, and I wish I knew more about it. 
But you have to think about this era in, you know, cuisine, especially American cuisine, where we're like in this industrial age where people think that canned food is actually like the next wave of like cuisine. Like people yeah, put a lot absolutely. of stock in canned food. Yeah, it's all preservatives, baby. Yeah. And it's, we it's got a miracle technology that yeah, will let you exactly. clean your house even faster. That exactly. will save you that, in the commies nukas. <laughs> that would would allow you to put dinner on the table really quickly, you know. And we yeah, got away, well, and we got away from fresh food. And uh, I just wonder, like, how, like, you know, the like whatever the French, I'll use, or the Italians, you know, the immigrants who came to the U.S. to like try to better their lives, and they saw. This is better. <laughs> like what you guys are doing here, like <laughs> boiling cans for dinner and making everything into a jello. <laughs> I mean, once they have a piece of hot dog pie, I think they'll change their tune. <laughs> Just put it in aspic. Delicious. Weston Williams, over to your end of the table. Ah, yes. Well, I've come prepared, George. I have oh, a boy. beautiful bowl, bowl of fruit. I have oh, with a, 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 a red pear. A, the cotton candy flavored uh, grapes here uh, for all the all you who are listening, uh, and I have a persimmon because peaches are not in season. Uh, these um, are made of wax. Uh, no, no, uh, and and as I was saying earlier, you know, I went to the opera and made sure people were actually eating on stage. Uh, observe this grape. Careful. Real time, friends. He's eating it yeah. real time. I'm eating it in real time. I could take a bite of this persimmon right now. I won't, but I could. <laughs> and that is because, as you know. I am a Wagnerian sort of person, and as a result, I'm always in search of Gesamtkunstwerk in my operas, and uh, I'm afraid That's one of that... my favorite German dishes. <laughs> right next to the Spätzle, you know? Uh, I, I think the, the problem is, is that there's an often neglected element of the Gesamtkunstwerk. You got your music, your dance, your, your uh, you know, uh, acting, all those sorts of things. Uh, you're all almost always missing that food component because food, cul the culinary arts are an art. Uh, and I get why it's hard to like, you know, do uh, have food going on during the show unless you are doing uh, musical murder mystery dinner theater, which is the only true Gesamtkunstwerk. I think we can all agree. Uh, but one opera that gets close is one of my absolute favorite operas to come out in the last uh um, uh, I don't know. Uh, I mean, honestly, it came out like three years ago, but it, it's probably my favorite opera of this century so far. It is so, so good. I cannot recommend it enough. It's called The Wake World by American composer, composer David Hertzberg, okay. uh, which was originally uh, premiered in 2017 uh, with uh, our good friends at Opera Philadelphia. Um, and there was a recording uh, that came out in 2020 which is how I became familiar with it. It's the best engineered classical recording I've heard in a long time. Anyway, um, I, and the reason I wanted to talk about it here is because food factors in at such like a primal level. This is one of those operas where the story doesn't really make sense. It's kind of like Bluebeard's Castle on acid a little bit. Uh, you or the have... Fiery Angel. <laughs> <laughs> Not quite as, uh, well, I, I was about to say not as horrific, but there is a little bit of cannibalism in this opera, so we'll get there. Minor. Minor, um, minor, minor cannibalism. Don't even worry about it. 
Um, so this is uh, this is one of those operas that's really about like the sensuous experience of being there. The original production was apparently not a proscenium. Uh, the audience was able to walk around wherever they wanted to during the show. The uh, orchestra is shockingly only like a it's like a six piece orchestra. It sounds like a full orchestra in the recording because they include, um, I think, 16 or so singers, which step out of choral roles uh, and into um, full singing roles. And uh, it sounds more like corn gold than anything, which is not something you hear a lot Mm. from. Corn uh, gold. I saw corn gold. Yes, <laughs> very good. Um, and uh, and it's it, it it's just it's really really an intense experience. It doesn't sound like any uh, like a part of any of the movements of contemporary opera going on right now. There's no minimalism. There's no pop influence. There's no imitation of Puccini or Wagner. There's no like cinematic sounds. You know what I'm talking about? It is very much its own thing, but very evocative of that pre-war decadent sound. And that's what it's all about. Basically, to break down the plot, uh, we have uh, 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 her name is Lola. She is in love. Was a showgirl. (laughs) (laughs) I like how you are all making the same joke at the same time, and I'm too young to understand it. Uh, So uh, we have. (laughs) This is why I'm at the kids' table here. Uh, So for this opera, with me, the kids' kids cannibal table. Uh, so we, uh, so this opera is, uh, is basically about Lola, who is in love with the fairy prince, um, who, uh, is, it's kind of, uh, the fairy prince is kind of a pants role. It's hard to say because, uh, they're referred to as he and she a couple times in the, in the, uh, in the role. I'm not entirely sure what, what that's supposed to be meaning, which I think is honestly really cool too. It's a really cool piece, but everything about it is about the sensuality of experiences from, uh, the action going on around stage, going from like phantasmagoric like location in the palace to to strange location uh, with the music just soaring above you and surrounding you. And even the libretto, even the stage directions do this where they really like drip in like the the absolute excess of everything. Let me read you a little stage direction from this opera. It's great. Um, This is the stage direction. The faces bait them in vociferous, seething silence as an ossified hell freeze from a 15th century Dutch master. That's a stage direction. That is not the text. I know exactly what I have to do. (laughs) (laughs) That's describing how people should look when they're standing still. It's amazing. Um, So basically, uh, they take this tour of, uh, uh, of the prince's castle, much like in Bluebeard's castle. Um, and one of the sort of like primary, uh, locations is the dining hall where there is a feast going on. Um, uh, but the thing is for this feast, they bring in a giant and they dismember him on the spot and eat all his bits and drink his blood. And it's all about connecting the idea of the body, feeling things with your senses, physical touch, physical pleasure, connecting that to the body and connecting that to food. There's this motif of various fruits being mentioned, like grapes or pears or not persimmons because you can't you can't set for you, the word for you podcast listeners he's holding up the fruit to the yes camera, yes so. it's I, really going it. for it you guys yeah I'm gonna take a little bite of the pear here a real gazamtkunstwerk this is like yeah. smallow vision or something it's great um but the opera really is about a celebration of sensuous pleasures including 
food and taste. And it's really, uh, it's really, really intense. And uh, so the, what happens over the opera, you get these, the image of the pear, uh, the flesh of the pear and the peach juice just kind of coming together with the wine and the grapes in a very Bacchanal-like way. And it turns into this this uh, amazing aria and then duet at the very end where the prince um, comes in as a she rather than a he and declares their love for uh, Lola. And it's an incredible moment. And the food imagery is right there in those final moments. And we'll hear like a little bit of it in just a second. This is from the only recording out there at the moments that I'm aware There's of. There's just one. Just one. It's brand new, <laughs> hot off the presses. It's a great recording, though. The conductor is Elizabeth Braden, and the fairy prince is sung by the American mezzo Samantha Hankey. Um, and she sings, uh, 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 among other things, I just want to read this passage, and then we'll go straight into it, because uh, it's just gorgeous music. Uh, she says, I have tasted the juice of the peach and the frothing flesh of the pear and drunk deep of the sweetness of honey and milk. But the wine of thy lips is the elixir of my love. Oh, let me drink till I reel bewildered in kisses. And it's, uh, it's so gorgeous. That's how you put fruit in an opera. <laughs> I'm eating the pear for all you listeners out yes, there. Yes, that was phenomenal, Weston. I'm so glad you ate something well in real time. It's this, this is a good pear too. It's nice. It's a it's a red pear for all you listeners out there. Yeah. I got it from Trader Joe's. It's delicious. The buffet exactly. is going to wrap up with Matt Cummings taking us to the final selection of food and music. What do you got? In the pantry, Matt. Another opera that, if you think about it for long enough, is also about cannibalism is 
Hansel and Gretel by Engelbert Humperdinck. <laughs> that is true. Um, no. And I, I, I couldn't pick anything else because this is an opera that is so related to the holiday season. Uh, maybe a little bit more related to Christmas because it is German and they don't mm-hmm. give thanks over there. Um, <laughs> but it's very frequently done this time of year and you might be going to see it with your children either this year or in a year in the future. Uh, it, it even debuted two days before Christmas, and there's been a tradition ever since then of uh, either a radio broadcast from the Met or the first opera to be broadcast in full live on television was Hansel and Gretel. There's a movie that was shown over great performances where my clips are going to be coming from today. Uh, just very charming, very lovely fairy tale opera. Uh, and it the way that it intertwines like food, fantasy, and family... I think are oh, the what, three F's, you know, the mm-hmm. classic three F's um, <laughs> are part of what make it such a great choice for for a holiday opera. Um, the music is very charming, late romantic. Humperdinck actually was an assistant uh, in the Richard Wagner compositional studio. And you mm-hmm. can hear that kind of influence in the chromatic uh, music that kind of links between these folk dance duets between Hansel and Gretel. Uh and the, the the opera even started as a bit of a family project. Uh, Humperdinck wrote the music and his sister, uh, Adelheid Vetta, uh, was writing a little play and asked him to write some songs to go with it. And uh, they got carried away and it turned into a full 100 minute opera. <laughs> Whoops. Um, there you go. And there's... A, the food often acts as like the linchpin of each scene. Like almost every action is capitulated by some sort of food event. The opera begins with Hansel and Gretel singing about how they don't want to work and how they are so hungry because they're this poor family living in a cottage in Germany. Uh, and they start dancing around. The mother comes home because and it's mad that they're not working. And when she goes to spank them, uh, accidentally breaks the jug of milk that was supposed to be used for dinner. Uh, and then sends them off into the woods to a get her out of there, get them out of her hair, and b uh, so that they can find some strawberries for dinner. I, I've always wondered what dinner can be created with a jug of milk. Were they going to have like a gratin, or were they just going to drink a glass of milk? You know? Apparently, they're supposed to be having rice pudding, but why okay. they were not able to just make the rice is very yeah. unclear to me. Maybe the water very wasn't safe to drink. Yeah. yeah, the water wasn't potable. Okay. Oh, there's there's wow. a good point. There you um. Go. But after they wake up in the woods, they, uh, they're playing around, they get lost, they eat the berries, they wake up, and they see this gingerbread house, as you probably guessed, because it is, after all, Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> and they, they run out of the woods, and they, they sing this really cute Lendler-like tune that there's an, a literal fanfare when they approach the, uh, the cottage, just like it's the sword from uh, the Valkyrie. Uh, and they're certain that it has this <laughs> exactly. kind of woodland princess inside. So let's hear uh, Edita Gruborova and Brigitte Fassbender discovering the gingerbread house. Oh, <laughs> 
it is not a woodland princess inside it is the witch who has turned every child who came to find this cottage into a gingerbread man uh and uh in this version of the story when gretel pushes her into the oven spoiler alert uh the the gingerbread house explodes and the witch herself turns into a cake and all of the little gingerbread boys and girls turn back into children the parents find them and they all get to live happily ever after um, and this opera, I think, is really one of the more realistic depictions of, like, an ordinary family. Now, granted, this is, like, a turn-of-the-century German family where child labor and <laughs> like are, like, an intrinsic <laughs> bit of it. Um, but, like, at the end of the day, people fight. They say things they don't mean. They make mistakes. But they all come they together. They send you to the workhouse. The <laughs> they leave their kids alone at home while the parents go off to work. That's real. Yeah, that is, you That's know, the, yeah. the original latchkey kids. Yeah. Hansel and Gretel. <laughs> um, and I, I did mention earlier that there's a lot of Wagner influence, and one of this, is, and one of those is like the use of thematic material to tie different scenes of the opera together, kind of like light motifs, but like they're little, they're more light melodies than just light motifs. Um, and one Extra of the early light motifs, yeah, <laughs> one of the early ones that you hear, uh, pretty close to the beginning of the opera is uh when gretel teaches when gretel tries to remind uh her brother hansel of the the saying that that their father always said when the need is greatest god the lord puts out his hand and this in the very first scene right before they are gonna run and jump and dance and play um this is the first time in the opera that you hear the tune from the really famous evening prayer that they sing at the end of act two it opens it it closes act two, and then actually, when the family is all reunited, those motifs come back. Uh, and that, to me, is a very, like, it really parallels the experience of the holidays. You've got all of these nostalgic old tradition tunes that are in your head from years and years ago. I mean, not years and years, because it's only an hour and a half. It's not a real Wagner opera. Um, <laughs> but just the way that the uh the use of music to kind of express the feeling of all coming together and like drawing on your shared universal history i think is such a great like parallel to the holiday season uh and i just love the way that it puts a bow on the piece and ties all ties the whole work together and it's so, just so every year when they get together and they hear that too and they're like oh i remember when we almost got killed by that witch and we almost got <laughs> when that witch almost ate us yeah. remember they're 17 they're the smoking w- cigs well, yeah. at least in this ver- oh, at least in this version the mother doesn't send them off to like try to kill the children she just yeah. wants them to get strawberries but um gretel is like in a cage right in the in the third Hansel's act in the cage Hansel the kid because yeah. one of the past gretel, gretel up, is like, the helper okay yeah they gotta they gotta make her fat because she was too skinny to be eaten. Exactly. So 
And they, exactly. they, they trick her. They outsmart her. Those little German kids. They're too <laughs> for clever. Them, it is part of that holiday <laughs> festivity. I mean, this is right up there with the Nutcracker, A Christmas Carol, Hansel and Gretel. In, in opera land, it really is that kind of go-to holiday show. Yeah. And we're gonna we're gonna have uh, Edita and Brigitta and Hermann Pry and Helga Dernesch, all the cast of this uh, film version from Great Performances, take you home with the finale to Hansel and Gretel. Box score. I don't know about all of you, but I am so full right now. I'm full of Your food heart is full. I've had so music. much pear. <laughs> My heart yeah. is full. That pear, I don't need to eat that pear. Uh, we'll do a good call, bad call, as we always do, to wrap up the show. We'll start with Oliver Camacho for a good call or a bad call. My good call came to me as we were actually having this conversation. It made me think of my own little tradition around Advent, which is to listen to Benjamin Britten's St. Nicholas Cantata. And it's another one of these pieces that was written for basically for a community or for a special event. But he knew he was going to be working with, you know, church choirs and children's choirs. And the writing for the chorus is very accessible. But then there's like this string quartet that plays that is clearly doing the more Britain stuff. And then the tenor soloist has the real, like Dudley Moore imitation of a Benjamin Britten opera, <laughs> Britain complicated <laughs> music. But it has like these hymns. Um, so the entire audience can participate uh, in this cantata. And um, it really does. I think this piece is more for the performers than it is actually for an audience. And I think it makes it so joyful. And it it's somewhat related to Christmas because it's like the origin story of St. Nicholas who, you know, eventually becomes Santa Claus, but not really, you know. So listen to St. Nicholas Cantata. There are three recordings. You can find one. Pick your favorite. 
Over to Matt Cummings. Well, much like Oliver, I uh, I was thinking of what music I'm going to be able to listen to uh, around the time that this episode drops because I have a strict no Christmas music before Thanksgiving policy, Ooh, wow. uh, okay. which means that this coming weekend, I will be listening to the Lincoln Center Christmas with Kathleen Battle and Frederick von Stade that we talked about on last year's Christmas episode. And let's descants for everybody, baby. <laughs> Weston Williams, what do you got? My good call is this pair. This, oh go to God. Trader Dude, Joe's, just, pick up those big bags. They're just, worth it, man. It really puts me in the holiday mood. Ashley Hardgrave. I will also be listening to lots of holiday music, including all of the messiahs that I gave you guys last year, uh, and also Boys to Men Christmas Interpretations. The thing still holds up. But what I was really thinking about for a good call this week, uh, and the only way it's holiday related is do not try this after your third plate of leftovers this weekend, uh, is Jakob Josef Orlinski Breakdancing in front of Lincoln Center that was released on the Metropolitan Opera's Instagram. If you have not seen it, go check out the Met Opera's Instagram. You will know which clip I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. Orlinski is busting all sorts of moves that should. And doing handstands, like really complicated handstands. They're it's he's incredible. Yeah, it's awesome. We haven't talked a lot of sports on the Evergreen Show this week. I will say, uh, Chris, excuse me, Thanksgiving Day, the Lions, my Detroit Lions, always play on Thanksgiving Day. This year, it's the Bears are at the Lions. Uh, oh Lions, my. Of course, uh, thank you. Lions, of course, have yet to actually win a football game this year. They did manage to tie the Steelers. So uh, by the time you get this show, perhaps the Lions will have yet one more loss in the bucket. That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, just search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, at Opera Box Score. Help us deepen that bench of listeners liking, sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore@gmail.com. Drop us a line. Get some merch. OBS beer coasters. Hey, that's food related. OBS lapel pen. Hey, that's not. Just for sharing your own hot take, subscribe to the podcast. Stitcher, just favorite the show. On Apple Podcasts, our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you feast on what whatever you're feasting on this week. We're back with an all-new show next week. We go inside the huddle with Kyle Kettleson. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more Patti LaBelle's sweet potato pie. Join us. <laughs> <laughs>